by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guy for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today, on By Any Means Necessary, we will be marking two years since the racist police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and where the movement against uh, racist terror stands today. Also going to be talking about the Biden administration's slight rolling back of sanctions on Venezuela and going to be discussing recent mainstream media coverage of Haiti and just what that means. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. While we were talking on the live hour about the mass murder in Buffalo disappearing from the headlines yesterday, and we didn't even get around to talking about how the grocery store manager had the 911 dispatcher hang up on her when she called the shooting in as it was happening, another mass murder was coalescing in Texas. Salvador Ramos of Uvalde, Texas, shot his grandmother, who survived, before fleeing and crashing a vehicle near Uvalde Elementary School, where he went in and proceeded to shoot 19 children and two adults to death. There are many details that are unknown and emerging about the latest massacre, and there are always more questions than answers when these things happen, and they always happen in this country. People always respond to these horrific events with renewed demands for gun control legislation and stricter background check requirements for gun buyers and raising the age required to purchase guns. And I don't think those are bad ideas, but I also know that they will not stop these mass shootings from happening in this country. The website American Gun Facts states that there are an estimated 400 million guns in the United States, between police, military, and American civilians, with over 393 million guns, over 98%, owned by civilians. That's the equivalent of 120 firearms per 100 citizens. The average gun-owning American has five firearms, while nearly 22% of gun owners only have a single firearm. Who owns all these guns? The 2020 National Sports Shooting Foundation Firearms Retailer Survey notes that during the first half of 2020, gun retailers noted that the overall makeup of their customers consisted of 55.8% white males, 16.6% white females, 9.3% black males, 5.4% black females, 6.9% Hispanic Latinx males, 22% Latinx females, 3.1% Asian males, and 0.7% Asian females. The highest overall firearm sales increase comes from black men and women, who showed a 58.2% increase in purchases during the first six months of 2020 versus the same period last year. And when looking at gun ownership in the U.S. in the context of global gun ownership, 
The U.S. has just 4% of the world's population, but owns about 40% of civilian-owned guns globally, according to a 2018 report from the Switzerland-based Small Arms Survey. The SAS estimates that American civilians owns 393 million guns, so that number is has been validated, ranking the U.S. number one in the world in firearm ownership per capita. And of course, there are costs associated with these high levels of gun ownership, human costs. Researchers at Harvard have found that across developed nations, this widespread ownership of guns is associated with, guess what, higher rates of gun homicides. There is no regulation, law, training, or reform that can do anything about the amount of guns that are already in the hands of just 40% of the American population. Nobody will be able to force those people to do anything that they do not want to do with or about those guns because they are heavily armed and they will use those arms to defend their right to continue to stockpile without restriction those and more arms. And those people are not young black and Latino criminals in the inner cities buying illegal guns in dark alleys. Oh, no. Those people are largely white middle Americans. That is just the reality of the situation in this country. So the only thing that will change this situation of rampant gun violence and incessant mass shootings is changing this society altogether. This society was built on sickness. It was shaped on depravity. It was grown and prospered on the human degradation and oppression and genocide of people who were not white male Protestant descendants of the Mayflower, the original settler colonists, or of the voluntary immigrants from Europe in the 19th century. This society breeds anxiety, angst, greed, narcissism, selfishness, isolation, mercilessness, entitlement, hatred, rage, and violence, because those are the characteristics that drove the so-called founding of this settler colony on the mass displacement and mass murder of indigenous people, the theft of their land, and the enslavement of Africans brought here to develop that land for the settler colonists' genocidaires. No one with compassion, empathy, kindness, or human decency, really, could have done what those people did and craft a narrative that basically says today that their might to be able to do those things made what they did right. But we are a different people. We are better people than them. We always have been because we survived. But we cannot simply be satisfied with surviving the hellscape they created. We are tasked with creating a better society, a society based not on competition and capitalism and exploitation and marginalization, but one based on people-centered human rights, socialism, equality, and justice. And reforms in policing, that's not going to stop this violence either. Because the system of policing is born out of this same sick system, reflecting the same sick and violent characteristics toward the non-property-owning class of people that this system exploits to make its obscene profits off of. The police cannot be reformed when they exist to defend this diseased, inhuman, evil system against the people who are rising up against their exploitation. Revolution. That is the only thing that will stop the mass shootings in this country. 
Doing anything short of revolution will only prolong the life of this sick society that breeds this violence that is a threat to all of us. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on. As they say, we're now happy to be joined by Afeni, an organizer with Freedom Fighters D.C. Afeni, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, under these circumstances, it's a little weird, but I'm really excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um And, of course, Afini, today marks two years since the racist police killing of George Floyd at the hands of then-officer Derek Chauvin in Minneapolis, uh, an incident that kicked off an entire rebellion against racism uh, in the summer of 2020 here in the United States, where we saw millions of people flood the streets um, in protest to this latest act of racist police terror and also something that faced, you know, serious repression and an attempt at an all out uh, a military assault on that movement by uh, uh, the U.S. government. I mean, both uh, Democrats and Republicans. And, you know, reportedly, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden uh, is expected to give an executive order that is supposed to overhaul or seriously uh, uh, reform uh, some police issues around uh, use of force and uh, restricting things like no-knock warrants and chokeholds and things like that. Uh, Reportedly, this order will also create a national registries of officers who are fired for misconduct and to restrict uh, the use and transfer of of most uh, military equipment to police department, something that has, of course, been happening for years now. And, you know, Feeney, I feel like when it comes to issues of uh, racist police terror and on days like today, I feel like we always get sort of the same response from elected officials like Joe Biden, and particularly on the policing issue. I feel like we hear a lot about chokeholds and no-knock warrants. And, I mean, to a large extent, I mean, a lot of these things are already sort of restricted or outlawed or prohibited or what have you. Chokeholds were already uh, illegal when Eric Garner got choked to death. You know what I mean? But but it still happened. And so we're also when we talk about Joe Biden, we're also talking about uh, someone who has been very, very clear um, about his stance on the police. He is deeply supportive of the police. He is militantly against the idea of defunding them and, in fact, wants to give them more money. And I could go on and on. I feel like there's, I mean, a lot to say, uh, particularly within the context of ongoing issues here in the U.S. But I'm just sort of wondering what you're sort of thinking and feeling, Afeni, as we mark two years since the killing of George Floyd. Um, well, right now I'm feeling very uh, disheartened because it's been two years since George Floyd got, um, uh, was murdered um, by the police and nothing has happened. No real recourse um, systematically has happened. Yes, of course, you know, Derek Chauvin went to jail. I'm an abolitionist. For me personally, that's not justice. Um, justice is making sure that what happened to George Floyd doesn't continue to happen. And we've seen in the years since, um, in the two years since George Floyd uh, was murdered, well, lynched by the police, <laughs> that thousands of 
people, unarmed people have been killed by the police. And this is an epidemic that has not actually been um, solved. It is not, it's a problem that isn't getting the proper attention that it deserves because the Democratic Party is more worried about their election chances, election chances and competing against the Republicans. Um, so as an organizer, an organizer who started their work because of um, the George Floyd uprising, um, I'm a product of the, that new crop of organizers, activists and, or, um, and advocates that came out of that generation. And we are putting in work um, for these radical changes to happen. Um, we are, we uh, you know, we have been participating in mutual aid and building dual power ever since then. Um, the grassroots organizations on the ground that have, that came out of that uprising, we have been doing the radical work, um, but we have not been supported by um, the grass top um, organizations. We have not been supported by our leadership on the left um, that is elected. We have not been supported by um, some of the community leaders in the black community who have the platform and who have the, the opportunity to educate people um, on what it looks like uh, to reallocate funds away from the dangerous system that is policing and put them into our communities and, re-invest- and reinvesting in, in programs that we know keep people safe, like social programs. And we, we just have really seen none of that. And we've, we've seen a regression in the past couple of uh, months in this country. And it's because of Joe Biden's and the Democratic Party's just complete and total lack of courage when it comes to issues around um, police brutality and other forms of white supremacy that affect our lives every single day. I mean, until we have elected officials that are willing uh, to take up that mantle, to have the courage to actually take these issues head on and dismantle them, dismantle them from the root, um, we're going to continue to see issues in situations like what happened to George Floyd, like what happened to Eric Gardner, like what happened to Sandra Bland and Ayanna Presley um, and Ayanna Stanley Jones, um, and the many, many, many black people that have died since then, even Patrick Loya, somebody who literally got shot in the head execution style over unregistered tags on April 4th of 2022. We're still dealing with these problems. We're still organizing against these problems. Uh, so... Yeah, we're, I mean, I know me personally, I'm looking for different solutions. I, I know that it can't possibly be that we're going to continue to vote blue no matter who until we all die, <laughs> because that's really what it seems like is going to happen. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm extremely frustrated today. I'm extremely uh, saddened by the fact that I feel like these issues are going to continue to, like, these things are going to continue to happen. I feel like my life is constantly in danger as a black person, but especially as a black organizer in this space. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm terrified. I don't really know how to put it. Like, I'm, I'm really terrified. I think that's the best way to put it, Fanny, because, you know, when we organize around issues like, you know, raising uh, awareness for people, political education on things like the 1033 program, where the Department of Defense literally gives their cast off military equipment to local police departments. And th- that equipment ends up on the streets every single time used against us when we are protesting against this very issue, police brutality, racist police terrorism. I mean, people would say that, well, Joe Biden's order is supposed to create a national registry of officers fired for misconduct, which, first of all, that's not going to be a lot of officers because not a lot of cops get fired for misconduct. And misconduct seems to me a very weird word to use in this order. I think it seems really 
ambiguous, and I think that's intentional. But then people would also point to the part of this order where Biden is uh, going to restrict the transfer of most military equipment to police. I feel like this order is worded in a way, if this is the way it is going to be worded, to to give cover to uh, the Biden administration saying they're doing something, but the words used in here are ambiguous enough to allow the same stuff to continue going on that we've been organizing against all this time. And I'm wondering if you are reading these parts of this uh, order in the same way as I am. Absolutely. Um, You know, I always say that Joe Biden said fund the police faster than he actually kept his promises to the Floyd family. He like that's just that's just the reality. He talked he talked all this big game about passing the George Floyd Policing Act, which was already much like this order, already milk toast, very bare minimum, nothing. <laughs> like nothing was gonna fundamentally change with that George Floyd Policing Act passing. But at least it would have shown that there was some I don't know, willingness to even to pander. But there, there doesn't even seem like a willingness to pander. It doesn't even seem like a willingness to pretend at this point like they actually care about this issue and they're going to do the things that are necessary in order to make in order to make sure that police are not allowed to just go around lynching whoever the hell they want. But until we address the issue of police violence and police brutality, until we address the issue of you know what is really a police genocide um, of black people. Uh, we're going to continue to see white supremacists like uh, Peyton, <laughs> um, like on Saturday, he's going to continue to be emboldened and empowered. And all of his actions are going to be justified by a system that continuously tells black people and all the people that are around us that we live with that our lives do not matter, that continuously tell us that we don't deserve um, basic humanity, that we don't deserve basic protection, that we don't deserve public education, that um, that actually teaches us um, how to be fully functioning, critically thinking members of society. Like, we continuously, we're told that we don't deserve recreational programs for our children. We don't deserve to have, you know, violence interruption in our neighborhoods because we're just way too violent. But we see that white supremacist violence in this country, white white supremacists can go unchecked. They can surveil. They can go out and do whatever the hell they want to do and shoot up people in grocery stores, shoot up kids at, at elementary schools. They can do all of these things without, without being tracked, without being stopped. But for some reason, the police can pull over, you know, people like DeWante Wright and shoot him for bad tags. People like Patrick Lua and shoot him for bad tags. They can find all of YSL, track them for months and book them on RICO charges down in Georgia. But for some reason, the police force in this country that is going, that would be the third largest military by personnel and funding if it was ranked as a global military, the third largest military in the world, that's who uh, are, they're trying to protect us, but they can't protect us from white supremacist violence. But they can, they can find a way to murder all these black people and not be held accountable for it. Like, we have to start having a real conversation of the implications of having a police force that can just do whatever they want unchecked. And we, ha- we don't do anything about it. We have no response to that. We as a people have to start to really look 
inward and see what our part in enabling this system of white supremacy is and how and what we are doing every day in our lives to try to dismantle that. We have to hold ourselves accountable to that because our elected officials are not going to do it. If y'all people want to do the voting strategy, great. Demand something for your vote, though. We cannot continue as black people to vote for a Democratic Party who refuses to protect our lives in the most simple ways at this point. The, the ways that we know that work because we see them happening in white neighborhoods. I grew up in a white neighborhood with recreational programs, with mental health care, with drug intervention, with all, with all these different types of programs that allowed me to self-determine, that allowed me to, to um, you know, get an education that I didn't have to go to college to be able to have some of the opportunities that I've had. You know what I'm saying? And that comes from a privilege of being in a neighborhood that actually invests in the community. So we're asking for that same investment. And we should not give a vote to the Democratic Party if they are not going to go ahead and meet these basic demands. Like, that's where we need to be at this point. And I'm sorry, but I'm just so angry because I'm seeing all the things that are happening in this country, all the violence, all of the destruction. And nothing is being done about it. And Joe Biden is putting in these orders these these just very just marginal, ambiguous, milk toast things. Even the Emmett Till, Emmett Till anti-lynching act did not say black people on it once. It never described the the crime of lynching and the destruction that lynching has that, that lynching has um, caused in this country how the lynch the, the destruction that is still causing in this country that two-page document had none of that on it so at the end of the day anything that joe biden puts out at this point unless it is explicitly written by black organizations by black-led organizations that are talking about those radical changes, unless it is explicitly written and approved by grassroots organizers, I do not believe that anything that comes out of his office will be good enough to solve the problems in this country, period. Yeah, and I think you, making the connection between uh, the recent uh, mass shootings and racist police terror, I think that's completely appropriate, Afeni, because they're uh, both rooted in the same tradition in history of white supremacist violence here in the United States. And the kind of uh, vigilante violence like we recently saw in Buffalo historically has worked hand in glove with uh, uh, police terror. I mean, that's why we saw these, you know, uh, racist uh, uh, white uh, uh, supremacist groups, you know, um, basically colluding with police, not only all throughout uh, the George Floyd protest, but sort of in, you know, in general. I mean, we saw similar things in Charlottesville and all these sorts of things. And so these are two elements that are joined at the hip. And see, when you take these two things together, these uh, mass shootings and racist police terror, it can absolutely, um, and this is actually a part of the point, it's supposed to create this feeling of fear, of isolation, of terror and uh, demoralization. And the point really is to sort of um, have a kind of paralysis set in to make people think that there's nothing they can do and they should just stay inside and be afraid and, and all these sorts of things. But see, this to me is precisely the value in uh, uh, building the movement in building our organizations, because it is those kinds of institutions that keep us 
us from succumbing to that fear and to that isolation and to that feeling like we we, we should just, you know, uh, basically uh, stay to ourselves and not try to uh, address these issues. Because Derek Chauvin would have never been sentenced had it not been for this um, a massive uprising that we saw in the streets. I, I think the U.S. capitalist state knew very well that there would be uh, consequences if Derek Chauvin uh, didn't get some kind of charge for killing George Floyd. And so as things continue to move forward, as we continue to see incidents of racist police terror and mass shootings, it just seems clear that the only real anecdote, the only solution is to organize not only around these specific issues, but to organize against the system that is the source for those issues. But we thank you so much, Afini, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the Biden administration doing a slight rollback on sanctions against Venezuela. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by independent journalist, writer and researcher Dennis Rogachuk. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us. Hello, Sean. Hello, Jackie. Always a pleasure to be uh, on your show. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Dennis, and there's been a very interesting uh, development as this week uh, the Joe Biden administration has said that it would slightly roll back some of the economic sanctions uh, levied against the government of Venezuela, of course, currently under the uh, elected leadership of Nicolas Maduro, um, out of an effort to get the Maduro government to restart talks between uh, the Venezuelan government and opposition. Forces, And, you know, it's definitely not uh, characteristic of U.S. presidents to uh, be terribly forgiving uh, when it comes to sanctions and things like this. And I mean, sanctions, as they do everywhere, have had a devastating impact on uh, the people of Venezuela, which, you know, is precisely the point. But I'm just wondering, Dennis, I mean, what do you make of this uh, rollback here? And uh, what do you think is really motivating Washington around this? Well, sure. I think uh, before we uh, talk about motivations, I think it's important to actually to actually talk about what sort of a rollback we, uh, what sort of a rollback it actually is, mm-hmm. because it's uh, it, it it only uh, really sort of uh, allows the uh, some of the American corporations that are still that are still in Venezuela that you know that still have remained in Venezuela, specifically Chevron. It it granted them a kind of a limited a license. Uh, to uh, continue, you know, uh, their um, <clears throat> partner, their, their partnership with the uh, well, with the Venezuelan oil uh, company, the the Pedavesa, uh, to import oil into into the United States. So uh, a rollback, I wouldn't really uh, call it. I'd say uh, sort of uh, just a, just a slight sort of uh, nudge, you know, uh, away away from the mass draconian. Uh, sanctions, which both uh, you know Trump and Obama implemented against uh, uh, against uh, against Venezuela, 
Now, as to as to why this is happening, I think uh, well, we, you know, you got, we got several reasons here. The most obvious one is, of course, uh, the, uh, the the current uh, global situation with the conflicts uh, in Ukraine. The, the mass increase, you know, uh, the, the, the spiraling out of, uh, of the uh, prices for, uh, you know, for, for gas, for, gas uh, for, pe- for petrol. I mean, uh, you, are, you are there, of course, of course we, the, the audience will be fully aware, aware of that every single time they fill up the, uh, you know, that, that tank, the fuel tank. So uh, the, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in, a way, in a way, the... Uh, the, the U.S. government, similar, to, of course, similar to uh, the European governments, have basically been scrambling uh, to find alternative uh, suppliers uh, for their for their daily needs. And uh, Venezuela actually seemed seemed like the most, uh, well, say, let's say, the cheapest uh, choice for the moment. Um, now, of course, uh, this is. Um, uh, the, 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 this, this might this might see is, this, this might seem as a, as a kind of a uh, I say as a positive move on the side on the side of uh, you know Biden at least you know in some way fulfilling some of the promises uh, that he made during the during the campaign uh, but again I believe that uh, this is uh, in some ways a way a way for uh, the United States government to uh, try to sway Venezuela away from from Russia because we have to remember that the, the Russian state oil companies also have a great amount of great deal of investment in the Venezuelan oil sector and the cooperation with them has been uh, quite well a, a, a long-term uh, cooperation now uh, it's perhaps uh, with you know, with the current conflict in Russia, with the sanctions and with the and with the you know with the embargo against oil, the Biden the Biden administration would perhaps in some way try to uh, yeah try to uh, say take over some of the influence uh, that Russia previously had uh, in Venezuela. Yeah, and according to the Biden uh, administration, uh, they warned that even the little bit of a concession that they have uh, given would be taken away if uh, Maduro's government, uh, they claim, these are their words, reneged on good faith efforts to negotiate with political opponents led by the former National Assembly leader Juan Guaido, the alleged president that nobody actually voted for in Venezuela. Um, And the opposition's main demand is a free and fair presidential election, which is the election is already scheduled to take place in 2024. I mean, the the fact that a quote unquote free and fair election is dangled in this uh, deal as some type of deal breaker um, continues to allege that there are not free and fair elections in Venezuela. So this seems like, you know, putting a, a slippery carpet under the rug of this deal to be yanked out whenever the the Biden administration feels like it, um, which is seems to me would be whenever Juan Guaido says he's not getting whatever he wants, Dennis. That's certainly. Uh, I mean, that's that's what it sounds uh, to me as well. I, will, I mean, with regards to the negotiations, I mean, with a new round of talks uh, now beginning, the well, I think I think I think what we what we also as remember that is that the the opposition itself uh, is also under under an enormous pressure to come up to some kind of an agreement with. Uh, with, uh, with with Maduro, because as I think, as they know, as we know, as basically the entire world knows, the Guaido experiment failed uh, miserably. 
uh, I think we we only have to look at the man's Twitter feeds to to, to, see, to see just you know just how oh, just just how incredibly pathetic the you know this sort of a this uh, uh, you know uh, intermediate government this interim government uh, has become the uh, because uh, the United States has realized that with the well, you know with the economic situation in Venezuela stable, uh, stabilizing. With the um, you know with with the higher with the higher oil prices, with 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 all of this, it is inevitable that Venezuela that Venezuela <clears throat> will recover economically uh, this year and will will continue this economic uh, recovery for the foreseeable uh, future. And the only way, uh, and, and and if that continues, then of course Nicolas Maduro would be reelected as president in twenty twenty four if he chooses to. Uh, then uh, then uh, again so the only way for them to um, uh, to try try to actually impede that is is to, is to once again sort of put forward this uh, you know this these proposals of of the negotiations uh, between, between the two sides now, and also we have to we have to remember that the you know, Venezuelan opposition is not a sort of a single not a single homogenous political entity, as there are many different factions within there that are opposed to Guaido and opposed to uh, Maduro, uh, that are also uh, <clears throat> uh, that's and, and also opposed to sanctions as well. Specifically, I'm talking about here the talking about the the uh, the recently well the recently elected governor of, of uh, Zulia, uh, Manuel Rosales, who comes from the the opposition faction, which, as I said, which is the anti-Guaido faction and anti-sanctions faction, and sort of rep- represents what you would call a, a moderate wing of the of the opposition. So, uh, so when we talk about you know negotiations between uh, Maduro and the and the, and the opposition, we really are we we have, we have to understand that we what we have is a united Bolivarian. Uh, government negotiating with you know with, uh, with, with several several gr- groups that are that constantly scolding and fighting uh, against the, against each other who can't even agree on the on the on their policy to, on their relationship with the U.S. or or, or sanctions. So uh, it will probably be the opposition breaking the good faith on the negotiations and not Maduro. Yeah, and it's worth repeating, Dennis, that. You know, this this opposition, this right wing opposition in Venezuela is quite divided and there are different elements to it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but not that long ago, the Maduro government was in talks uh, with certain uh, factions and wings of the opposition. I believe these talks were uh, taking place in the Dominican Republic. And these are some of the same elements that uh, I believe were uh, sanctioned by the Trump government for actually taking part in uh, Venezuela's uh, uh, election. And so it just it, it feels like Washington is obviously still very much interested in regime change in Cuba and trying very hard still to legitimize this person, Juan Guaido, who they handpicked and plucked from obscurity and brought swaths of the uh, Venezuelan people. Didn't even know who he was uh, when all of this first uh, started to, to, to bubble. And uh, when you were mentioning earlier about the issue with uh, uh, Ukraine, I definitely think that's relevant as well, because, I mean, Washington may in some way be uh, recalibrating their uh, orientation towards Venezuela. It sort of feels like their basic stance is more or less the same. But but what's your take on that? 
Well, I, was, uh, well, I think it would be foolish to think that you know the United States has given up on regime change in either Venezuela or in, or in Cuba. Yes, sir, yeah, certainly. Now, the uh, I'll say, I'll say with, with regards to the also to, uh, to the dialogue, the reason the reason why the dialogue actually failed last time. Uh, it was because because of uh, one one particular issue, and that's the case of uh, Alex Saab, uh, the Colombian uh, businessman who played a key part in, uh, say in, uh, say trying to ele- elevate uh, the, the sanctions, basically, uh, basically you know providing uh, Venezuela with you know with, with food and medicines uh, from na- from neighboring countries, and who was basically arrested for uh, money laundering. Initially, and is now in in the U- in the U.S. custody, and has been and has been considered as being instrumental in uh, helping Venezuela fight against uh, the blockade. Now, uh, is you uh, sorry as you mentioned as you mentioned uh, uh, with, uh, with, with, with you know with the question with the question you know with regards to Ukraine, the. I, I believe we've seen this sort of a recalibration before. I believe we saw it during the Obama, Obama administration as well, uh, during, uh, specifically during the years between uh, 2012 and uh, 2014, when uh, when uh, when Obama basically uh, kind of uh, <clears throat> kind of switched the U.S. Uh, say regime change policy away from Latin America and towards Middle East and towards uh, Europe. Because this is because precisely during these years we, we saw the U.S. intervention in Syria, we saw the U.S. intervention in Libya, of course, in Ye- uh, in Yemen, uh, we saw the uh, uh, of course the, the coup in in Ukraine in twenty in twenty fourteen and the beginning of uh, of uh, of this sort of a proxy war, which uh, which the which the regime in Kiev waged against the. Um, uh, against the Donbass uh, republics, and I believe in some ways we we started to see, to see it again. You know, you know, the United States sort of, you know, United States sort of recalibrating itself towards you know uh, finding a, a bigger conflict uh, with Russia and soon possibly, possibly with China, or the issue of uh, Taiwan. So in some ways, in some ways, this might this 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 could be an opportunity for. Uh, Say for nations like Cuba, like Venezuela, like Nicaragua, for other left-wing uh, governments in in Latin America, to give them give them sort of a bit a, a bit of, a bit of breathing room in order to uh, well, while the U.S. Are, are distracted to try to build try to build uh, uh, the alternative, uh, say, the alternative there. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dennis, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We're going to move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about mainstream media coverage of Haiti. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Dr. Tamanisha John, a professor at Clark Atlanta University and Caribbean regional analyst. Dr. John, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. And Dr. John, here recently, the New York Times released uh, a series of long form articles about uh, the history and politics of Haiti entitled The Ransom, which uh, seems to focus on uh, the period when France, of course, following the uh, uh, Haitians independent struggle that was successfully waged, making uh, uh, Haiti the first you know, free, independent black nation in this period when France basically demanded reparations from Haiti, uh, an act that uh, was a serious factor and an impediment to uh, Haiti's development that I think continues to impact them even today, a couple centuries after the fact. And there were some that I think took issue with uh, the framing or perhaps the um, uh, context or content of uh, the history and analysis of these articles. And, you know, I'm definitely curious your thoughts, not only of these uh, serious of articles, Dr. John, you know, like, what do you think, uh, if anything, that was missed, something that should be pointing out? Just how are you feeling about how, how this whole piece has sort of been put forward? So because um, you, got, you all had called me, I decided, okay, let me read the piece and fully engage with the rest of their other material because I am completely opposed to having any sort of subscription with the New York Times. I don't believe that the paper puts out a lot of journalism that has a lot of integrity, even though it has a big name. And I will note that what's ironic is one of the criticisms that I personally saw was talking about the accessibility of journalism. And when I saw that post talking about the accessibility of journalism versus, you know, more academic works or activist types of works, which I don't necessarily think is true to begin with, I thought it was ironic that the New York Times piece that claims to uncover such this, you know, big depth of history that people should know about is behind a paywall. So I will just uh, point that out earlier on. But getting to the piece itself and the New York Times reporting on the piece and the rest of their sort of series and photographic works on, you know, that serve as appendages to the piece the piece itself historicizes the debt to France that Haitians were forced to pay in the 1800s, early 1900s, so, so basically all the way into the 20th century. It doesn't really talk about how French troops that threatened Haiti at these different intervals were actually backed by the rest of the imperial and Anglo-Settler world, including the United States. It mentions the USA occupation really briefly is simply happening without putting it into context to note that it was the you know U.S. that looted gold from Haiti and occupied it from the 1910s on. So they mention this as, as passing, and it sort of is disjointed in a way because it doesn't also mention the fact that the United States helped France enforce its collection of this debt, the you know the quote unquote debt of Haitians just fighting for freedom and having to pay back these slave owners. And during that U.S. occupation, they also mentioned how development under U.S. occupation meant that Haitians were forced to build roads that these sort of occupiers and thieves could loot from. And as they were forcing Haitians to build these roads in a way that was akin to slavery, it was all done to the, fact, to the effect of looting resources and gold from Haiti. Um, the piece unsurprisingly glosses over the Duvaliers and their support from European countries and the Anglo-Settler world, including the U.S. And it talks about debt and occupation in a very historic way, negating the work of many Haitian writers, activists, academics, and other kinds of scholars that they undoubtedly relied on to engage the piece that they actually wrote. 
to pretend that the New York Times is the first to talk about this history of debt. And they don't even bring people up to speed towards the end of the article with the fact that today Haiti is still an occupied country, not in control of its own finances. That today Haiti is a country that continues to pay massive debts, sees its resources stolen, and its workers exploited the most in the Americas by the Anglo settler world and Europe. What it takes is a well-documented history, historicizes it, and blames the history alone for the reality in Haiti today without talking about how that history has informed the present situation in Haiti, not just as a historical fact of Haiti, but as a process which has been ongoing in Haiti and against Haitians. And so having framed uh, what the article spoke about and then, you know, my biggest criticisms of the article I'll now talk about why people were rightly angry at the article outside of the New York Times claim that it was engaged in something that had never been done before. Like even off the top of my head, you cannot make that claim when uh, Mikhail Roth trio exists, right? And so much of the anger around the New York Times piece was that it presented sort of this novel understanding of Haiti that has never been, you know, done before given its own massive undertaking of archival Um, research and oral research. And again, this isn't true. So not only do you have Haitian historians that have pointed out that this isn't true, but most importantly in my mind is that Haitians have long protested against foreign meddling in their country ever since the Haitian Revolution. And I'm appalled by the fact that there were protests and protesters in Haiti just in 2021 talking about European and Anglo-Settler backed and enforced presidents in their country, including the one that was recently assassinated. And they were protesting in Haitian Creole, French, and English, telling the U.S., France, and Canada to leave their country and to get out. And then in this year as well, in January, February, and March, you had women workers and their families in Haiti protesting for a higher wage And that has been denied to them by U.S., European, and Canadian manufacturing and retail corporations. And so today, these states are part of a group known as the core group, which effectively acts as the managers or what we would call more appropriately colonial administrators of Haiti. And none of this was mentioned in the New York Times piece, which, instead of understanding history as a process, puts or posits history as something that just ends. And so atrociously... The piece ends by giving bad development stats in Haiti and the present and outside of placing the onus for the present bad stats on a history of debt that Haiti and Haitians have simply been, you know, unable to overcome. The New York Times piece ignores all of the processes of continued subjugation and lack of sovereignty and self-determination that still confronts Haiti, given the continued input and use of force encouraged and utilized by external forces. And so... This is why since Haitians first started leaving Haiti ever and started claiming asylum elsewhere, their claims could never be denied. And it's because Haitian self-determination and sovereignty has always been something that has been robbed and continues to be robbed in the present. And the New York Times piece just didn't have the scope to cover that. And it didn't have the integrity to mention the fact that this is something that Haitians have always you know, sounded the alarm bells on. And sorry for that very long-winded answer. I was very upset and passionate about this.
No, that long-winded answer was absolutely perfect because you encapsulated the problem, uh, the real problem with this piece is that the New York Times has no integrity, and it has shown that with the way they framed uh, their their piece. You know, because some people do know that Haitians overthrew the French slave masters and declared independence, uh, independence in 1804, but they don't know the story about the debt. And in fact, it's really a double debt. So can you explain what the New York Times left out about that double debt that really is at the root of uh, the underdevelopment, the continued and intentional underdevelopment uh, that Haiti experiences today? So, again, uh, I like that you pointed out before asking about this double debt question, the New York Times lack of integrity. So, again, prior to talking to you all, I looked at the piece and then I also looked at the little photographic images that they attended to add on as an addition because of the criticism that the piece rightfully received. And in this photographic addendum that the New York Times posted, not only did they finally decide to include um, uh, Haitian historian Artaban, but they also mentioned the double debt in their sort of photographic evidence to include sort of like the loans that Haiti had to take out to pay France and then also the loans that Haiti had to take out to also supplement its country because of the 500,000 gold bars that the U.S. stole from Haiti. And so in its initial piece, the double debt isn't mentioned, but when Haiti, the Haitian Revolution happened and Haiti was isolated from the international system unless they paid France back these, you know, back then millions in today's numbers, billions and billions and billions of dollars for daring to be free. Um, You had it that they were isolated. And after uh, the president agreed to pay back this large sum to France, then it was like, okay, because Haiti will pay back this large enough to France, they can be integrated into our international system. And how do you integrate sort of former colonies into the international system? One, you make them highly indebted so they can remain dependent entities within the capitalist world system as ran by European and Anglo settler countries. And so they have to pay this massive debt to France for winning their freedom. And then they also, in order to be integrated as a modern country in the you know, international world system, take off massive amounts of debt to pay France back because they are unallowed to default on that debt and because they have to pay this debt back to France because they've taken out these loans that all of a sudden makes them a modern and, and, you know, modern just means dependent country in our current world system. Now you have French, French, U.S., European and other, you know, Canadian entities that are allowed to set up in Haiti as banks, as corporations, as service industries that also heavily tax uh, Haitian people in sort of just living their regular daily life. And so if you were a Haitian farmer in the 19th, 20th, and 21st century and you're making crops for export so that you can get a small income for yourself, over 90% of your export earnings were siphoned off away from you to pay back this massive debt to France, to pay back these massive loans from U.S. and other European banks and financial interests. And so what we have is a situation where even though Haitians have overpaid the initial French debt, they are still paying a debt because 
in order for them to become a quote unquote modern country in our world system, they have to take on loan debt to pay off France. And that loan debt makes them beholden to the U.S. and all of these other countries that effectively act as colonial administrators in Haiti today. And I will note that disgustingly, in a defense of a piece about theft and the public and historical and present narratives that downplay the theft of Haiti and Haitians, not just economically, materially, socially, and culturally, but I saw some people trying to justify the fact that the New York Times didn't cite any Haitian scholars or didn't bring the piece up to date to talk about how this is something that still is ongoing in the present, even though Haiti and Haitians have been telling this story for a really long time. And something that strikes me is that the inaccuracies reflected in the New York Times piece to bring people up to speed in the present or to simply cite who they've used in this research, it's not simply a failure to cite, but it's also a failure to talk about history as a process and how Haiti continues to be subjugated by capitalist and imperialist forces in Europe, North America, and the Anglo world writ large. But it also justifies, again, the fact that it is okay to continue to steal from Haiti, to continue to deny Haitians the ability to tell their own story, and in effect view them as humans that have been telling this story, that they don't have the sort of self-determination and sovereignty that they envisioned for themselves after the revolution in 1804. Yeah, definitely. And I can't help but think about the fact that um, uh, John Bertrand Aristide, who, you know, was acknowledged as Haiti's first uh, democratically elected leader, um, made a a similar claim while he was in office about the money that uh, Haiti was compelled to pay France under threat of invasion and how that money uh, needs to be paid back. And this is the same Aristide that was kidnapped and forced into exile uh, by the U.S. government. And, and, you know, thinking about that and also thinking about the comments you just made, doctor, it's just a reminder of how important it is to sort of have the proper frame around this history, because this is what gives us a sort of clear picture of uh, why the country of Haiti is in uh, the condition that it's in today. It's because of incessant uh, uh, slavery and colonialism and intervention from, uh, you know, a series of uh, colonial and imperial powers that at every turn has uh, tried to scuttle all self-determination efforts uh, by the Haitian people and causing great suffering uh, uh, among them. So even looking uh, uh, towards today, when we look at the turmoil that is ongoing inside Haiti, I mean, I feel like so often the framing is that this is basically this uh, uh, country, um, you know, ran uh, by uh, uh, black people. It's backwards. It's corrupt and so on and so forth. But there's never really any explanation into why conditions play out the way they do. And so as such, the sort of real context of things becomes skewed. And so, you know, Doctor, I think that's why it's important that the voices that were missing from this coverage um, be included, because this helps us actually understand the situation and can therefore uh, uh, plot, I think, a clear path to to resolving some of these historic crimes. And you're 100 percent right. So not only, as Aristide said, the stolen money needs to be repaid, reparations need to be given to Haiti and justice, because in today's world, Wages in Haiti are still robbed. As I pointed out, in 2022, we are talking about the fact that Haitians still cannot even make, you know, $5 a day because European, U.S., and other Anglo-Settler corporations tell them that they can't. 
So they, they're not even allowed to make above what the World Bank would classify as, you know, being out of absolute poverty. And no one sees a problem with that. Uh, we always see these claims that Haiti is the most impoverished or the more underdeveloped country in the Western Hemisphere. And that's the sort of conclusions people will reach when they read that New York Times article. But the fact of the matter is that Haiti is one of the most exploited countries in the Western Hemisphere because they, throughout their history, in order for them to be considered members of the world or human society that we live in today, just in order for them to be considered members, they've had to consent to having their dignity stolen, robbed, and impoverished. They've had to consent to being in debt, meaning being dependent. And if it is the case that their colonial administrators have been in charge of their society for over two centuries, including into the present, and we say that the situation of Haiti is still one of mass poverty and impoverishment, we need to be honest that development was never the goal of helping to integrate or bring Haiti from a a sense of isolation in the world system to one of integration. And I think that that is very important. And this is why the history of Haiti, as Haitians know it and tell it and have shared it, becomes very important. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dr. John, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, May 25th, 2022. And, of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us at sputnik.mave, M-A-V-E, dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern every weekday. And we are streaming live for your viewing pleasure right now on 
Rumble. That's rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Christine Hendricks. President to the University City School Board, Junior Bayard Rustin Fellow with the Fellowship for Reconciliation and contributor to the Truth Telling Project and We Stay Woke podcast. Christine, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me today. Absolutely. And Christine, of course, another very tragic mass shooting taking place here in the United States where uh, a gunman who reportedly was wearing a tactical gear and carrying a rifle killed uh, at least 19 children and two teachers at an elementary school in uh, Uvalde, Texas. And uh, according to reports, uh, shooting began at around 11.32 a.m., which was the third to last day of school when the shooter opened fire in a fourth grade classroom, according to one parent. Well, children, of course, uh, fled the scene as best they could, crawling through windows, some of them hiding in a nearby funeral home to escape. And also before the gunman drove to the school to carry out this attack, he shot his grandmother, who then had to be airlifted to a hospital in San Antonio, Texas, along with um, several other victims. And, you know, this is happening, Christine, of course, not that long after uh, another mass shooting, a a racist terror attack in Buffalo, New York, where at least 10 people were killed. And also today marks two years since the racist police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And, you know, I always think, uh, Christine, because, uh, you know, you're there sort of in the the St. Louis area where we saw um, another serious uprising against racist police terror in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, talking, of course, about the killing of uh, uh, Mike Brown and how that really kicked off what became the movement for black lives in earnest in the United States. And so it's 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 a heavy time. To say the very least, it feels like a dangerous time. I tend to think that this is sort of indicative of a kind of new political moment that we're in, a dangerous political moment, one that will certainly require the best of us and the best of our organized efforts to really address it. And it can be hard to know what to say. Uh, when sort of facing down so much tragedy. And so I won't editorialize too much, Christine, but just sort of wondering your top line thoughts uh, in this moment. Um, yeah, so of course, um, you know, top of my head, of course, uh, is always, you know, just my um, deepest condolences um, to the families, both in Buffalo and uh, in Texas, uh, you know, I just it, it can't even imagine um, what they must be going through. And, you know, as a, a country and a community, we didn't I don't feel we really had time to properly grieve 
uh, what happened in Buffalo. And then now we're being faced with a new tragedy um, that also involves um, young children. And, you know, that seems to make it even more traumatic, I feel, and you say it's like kind of a national conscience. Uh, but also, you know, when I was, you know, thinking about it this morning, I, you know, I was talking to someone in you know, just kind of letting them know exactly what a mass shooting is. Um, a mass shooting is described as a four or more people uh, being injured in, uh, you know, in, in an act of gun violence. And so in the United States, um, just in 2022, I believe there is 198 incidences of mass shootings, um, 19 of which uh, took place in some type of school setting. Um, and it kind of breaks down to we're experiencing 10, 10, um, a week. I thought we were having like about a mass shooting a day. Turns out it's a little bit more than that when I actually looked up the, the data for it. And so really just understanding that, um, we're hearing about the tragedy, uh, that happened in Buffalo and, and email, but the honest to God truth is, is these tragedies are happening around us every single day. Um, people are, are being injured. And the, the, the times when we speak about it the most, kind of like with police brutality, the times when it really reaches our national consciousness is when, um, you know, someone dies. And I just want people to really sit with the fact that we're living with it every day. It's happening all around us. And, um, you know, we should not think for one moment that we even have a moment's peace because it's literally happening every day, sometimes twice a day, and the media is only feeding you the stories they want to feed you. And I think this leads me what you just explained about mass shootings and how frequent they really are in this country every single day, 365 days a year. There is more than one mass shooting somewhere in this country every single day. And I I wonder how you frame that knowledge around the kind of organizing we have to do to combat that kind of reality. And and maybe not even to combat that kind of reality, Christine. I'm kind of thinking of how we are expected to organize facing that reality, right? Because We're talking about 365 days of trauma for somebody in this country. And in a lot of cases, it is repeated trauma in the same places. So how do you see the landscape of organizing and the ability of those of us who are involved in organizing to continue that organizing Facing that reality that we're not talking about, you know, some esoteric, you know, shapeless kind of thing that that we don't know what it looks like and, and the effects of it are. We're literally facing this drumbeat of death every single day. And, and what does that mean in, in, in how we organize, how effectively we organize and how do we keep people organizing under so much trauma? Yeah. So when I, you know, when I think about, um, you know, organizations, I might get the the names wrong because I'm going off the top of my head, but, um, and I think like, what is it? Like Sandy Hook Promise or the the parents who organize around Sandy Hook. Um, you know, when I think about them, I think about, you know, a lot of times, you know, they continue to stay in the national spotlight because of tragedies like what happened today. But in reality, you know, I really would like to see that, um, see them doing more organizing too, um, around, 
you know, what is really the, the mass shootings that we're really experiencing is kind of that communal violence that's happening. And a lot of times, I guess, because it's happening in inner cities, <laughs> I think that, you know, a lot of times that's why it, 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 it can miss the national consciousness because we don't typically think of um, neighborhood violence or something that happens, you know, like at a park or whatever as being, you know, part of, you know, this epidemic of mass shooting, but it really is. And so when I really think about, you know, organizing, I think about organizing around the availability of um, guns, and especially considering a lot of these people are young men. Um, I live in a state, I live in Missouri, where um, I have literally been to gun shows where people who look the exact same age as, you know, the shooters we've seen are literally standing there and they're buying the semi-automatic um, rifles. And, you know, they, they are able to buy them because they have the name rifle. If you're 18, you can buy a rifle. But I still, for the life of me, cannot figure out why in any state an 18-year-old can go to a gun show or to, you know, a place, buy an assault rifle, and probably within minutes, as long as they have the, the money and they can pass a background check, which I would think most 18-year-olds could pass a background check because you're 18. And what kind of criminal history would you really have? You know, and so you we can't even rely upon, you know, criminal history and background checks. Like, to some extent, we have to say, does an 18-year-old really need a semi-automatic? Who really needs a semi-automatic rifle? I would suggest no one. <laughs> but, you know, there are so many people in this country who believe and So we really need to start combating, you know, uh, these narratives and, and, and really talking about what it looks like on the ground, what people are actually experiencing and to continue to organize with our local legislatures. And e even if it's just your, in your city around, you know, what types of uh, weaponry can be owned? Because I, I really feel like that is a serious problem that we have. Like I said, I've seen it with my own eyes. Yeah, and I got to say, I'm pretty disgusted by the response to this, um, really from the, the, the political mainstream in, in general, because, you know, we, we always, it seems like it's, it's just a, a vicious cycle of how these things always uh, uh, play out. It's like there's a mass shooting or some kind of terror attack and then we get, you know, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of there's heavy media coverage on it for at least a moment. I mean, we were just talking yesterday on the show about how it seems like the Buffalo shooting has already fallen out of the news. So we get that moment of media attention, thoughts and prayers from the usual suspects. Absolutely nothing of substance is is done. And then we're basically just kind of in a, a holding pattern until the next tragedy happens. And uh, uh, Joe Biden uh, even wrote on Twitter, he said, these kinds of mass shootings rarely happen elsewhere in the world. And that is the last true statement of this tweet, because he goes on to say, why are we willing to live with this carnage? Why do we keep letting this happen? Where in God's name is our backbone to have the courage to deal with it? It's time to turn this pain into action. Well, where's your action, Joe? You're talking about wearing God's name is our backbone. Where is your backbone on Roe v. Wade? Where was your backbone on the Build Back Better bill that your administration put together? And when the right wing of your party attacked it, you folded like laundry. Where was your backbone then? You're talking about why are we willing to live with this carnage? You oversee the largest military war apparatus in the entire world. You just sent 
tens of billions more dollars to Nazis in Ukraine. You don't think that causes carnage? 800 some odd military bases and installation. That's nothing but carnage. You see what I mean? So this is it's just such disgusting hypocrisy that we see from the people that uh, uh, fancy themselves as our leader. And so he's talking about it's time to turn this pain into action. But that never actually happens. And so what action, quote unquote, typically looks like is, you know, painting around the corners and maybe some legislative stuff about things that already have prohibitions like choke codes and no knock warrants and all these sorts of things. But never, never, never. Democrat or Republican, do we ever see uh, these politicians try to address these things from the actual root? And while at the same time pretending that they don't have a direct role in the social decay, the rot that is happening in this country that leads to these kinds of shootings. And so it, 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 this is just such a stark reminder, Christine, of the fact that you know, for all the for all the political theater that we are uh, force fed in this country, uh, these officials have made it clear. They make it clear time and again that they're not actually interested in critically addressing these uh, uh, issues, which have a material base. These mass shootings don't just come out of nowhere. Right. Just like climate change doesn't come out of nowhere. None of the pressing issues that face our society or, or face this world happen in a vacuum. They're happening under a particular set of circumstances, right? And so I feel like this is just more proof. This further confirms what we've always believed here on the show is that ultimately, if, if we want to see a real end to these issues, these terror attacks and these mass shootings and all these other social ills, then that will have to be placed squarely in the hands of the masses of poor, working and oppressed people in an organized movement. Because, Christine, it seems like if we leave it in the hands of the officials, if we leave it in hands of Biden and the Democrats or the Republicans, then, you know, we can bet your bottom dollar that it's just a matter of time before this happens again, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I, I definitely don't place a lot of faith into politicians. But while you're talking, um, I was just thinking, you know, amongst the lines of organizing. And um, I really think also while we're considering organizing, I think that we need to just consider this may be kind of unpopular, but I just feel like maybe we have a crisis um, amongst young men in this country and um, maybe their perceived role in our society. And, you know, maybe we need to, you know, take that into consideration, you know, especially amongst uh, white men and then being radicalized into white male supremacy. But also even, you know, looking at this, this you know, new case where he is not a white male, uh, we can still see how we as a society are, are, are failing, um, you know, our young boys and men. And they are able to become radicalized and they have the prevalence and availability of guns um, available to them to commit heinous acts. And we, you know, as a society continue to, um, you know, you alluded to it, you know, just from, from the top down, like violence is embedded in every, you know, piece of our society from, you know, Joe Biden and our legislatures allowing it through, you know, taking a woman's right away or to sending, you know, troops or money to support war 
or, you know, whether, you know, you turn on the television or any type of uh, popular music today. And so when you have a culture that is severely embedded in violence from the, from the very top down, uh, we cannot be surprised when, you know, the continual per, per, uh, per, per, uh, perpetuation of violence by the oppressed, uh, you know, keeps, keeps happening by the press or by people who feel they are in a position of oppression because the government is not seeing them or, you know, their concerns. And so then it becomes, uh, well, you know, the black people are doing this. And so we have the shootings in Buffalo or it becomes I'm a pariah of society. And so I want to take that on, on somebody else. And I don't want to just simplify it as saying mental illness. I really think it's a societal failure on how we, um, you know, have, uh, have uh, view young, young men and boys. Yeah, I don't think that's unpopular at all, Christine. I think that's a really key part of this, because when you consider that this society was was shaped, crafted, thought up on the ideas of white male patriarchy, you know, white supremacist thinking and the primacy of men, when you have a society now that has pushed a whole bunch of people out to the margins. A lot of them, uh, young men, young men who are seeing that this idea of an American dream that they were sold, that that their parents sold them, they're not going to get it. They know they're not going to get it. They see that it is so far out of reach that nobody's going to get it. So they're completely disillusioned in, in, in regard to what they thought they were entitled to as quote unquote Americans. I think that's a big, big part of it. And I think... We are not going to solve this issue unless, of course, we have a, revolu- a revolution and change this society. But I think we have to stop nibbling around the edges of that issue, Sean, and, and, and you know, stop ignoring the fact that there is something deeply, deeply systemically going on with young men in this country and how they see themselves or rather how they don't see themselves as part of this society and the anger they have behind it. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. By any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lugman continue to be joined by Christine Hendricks. And Christine, uh, we've been discussing sort of how uh, uh, it seems that we always see young men engaged in these, uh, these mass shootings, these terror attacks, these tragic acts of violence. And I think there's a direct connection to that. And a point you made a little earlier about basically how violence and specifically racist violence is at the very root of what the United States is as an entity and as an institution. It is a part of the fabric. It is in the DNA of this country. Right. And so when we see 
uh, these mass shootings and these terror attacks, that is the logical conclusion of a system that has at its root genocide, slavery, and the worst kind of uh, violence. So that's one thing. I also think there's a profound kind of social isolation that uh, emanates from the capitalist system that I think uh, breeds this kind of antisocial behavior. And a big part of that, uh, that, that isolation and a part of this capitalist culture is institutional and cultural uh, patriarchy and misogyny, right? Where masculinity becomes defined along lines of brutality, of violence, and all these uh, sorts of things. Now, you throw in white supremacy into all that, which is also a part of the roots of this country and uh, a big part of what help keeps uh, uh, the capitalist system functioning. And that's how we get these sorts of uh, creatures, if you will, like the, the mass shooter in Buffalo, like Dylan Roof, like the Christchurch shooter, like all of these, you know, racist, anti-Semitic, bigoted, uh, anti-LGBTQ and every other reactionary political opinion holding um, types of folks. They are all um, uh, uh, products and the result of just this kind of thinking. And even though uh, the Christchurch attack, I mean, it, it took place in you know, New Zealand in another country, but once you understand how the U.S. Uh, promotes and really facilitates that kind of organized uh, a white supremacy, both at home and abroad, then you see that there's a connection and it's appropriate, at least in my opinion, uh, to speak of this in uh, uh, international terms in that way. And so in reality, Christine, when we look at what's deemed, you know, American exceptionalism, which, as I always say, is, is really just imperial hubris. A big part of that is both ignoring the reality of this history and justifying the brutality of that same history to frame it as necessary and good for the development of the so-called uh, greatest country on Earth. You know what I mean? And so I feel like the U.S.'s ongoing refusal to really reckon with its own history. And I mean, when we look at these issues around critical race theories and banning books and, and all these sorts of things, I think that's just sort of the, the most modern expression of that. But this refusal to grapple with this history feels like a big part of why we continue to see this and how those in power seem to always be completely impotent and incapable of actually addressing it. Yeah, I really feel like their inability to um, address our issues uh, is, is not really an inability. It's more of a don't want to. And I, I think a lot of times, you know, they keep us in this fear loop because, you know, as you know, we're, you know, in the middle middle of, um, you know, an election season. And so, you know, that makes for great politics. 
while, you know, this is a tragedy and a crisis, um, our elected officials um, and, you know, power brokers never, um, never miss an opportunity to turn, you know, never miss the time to turn a crisis into an opportunity. And that opportunity is selling us the pipe dream that they will actually do something uh, to rectify this situation if and only if we get out and we vote and we, you know, for Democrats X, Y, and Z. And so I, I believe that it is it is a tactic. Uh, you know, this will be used to uh, raise both incidences will be used to raise money um, on both sides, honestly. Um, and it just becomes, you know, m- uh, more of a, a show and kind of an entertainment, which is, I think, to the point of people becoming numb to it because people begin to see it in this in this continual and perpetual loop. And it feels um, as though we can do nothing about it. It feels as though this is the way that it has to be because this is the way it has been. And if you're an adult who's, you know, under 40, this is the way it has been your whole entire life. You've literally seen this your entire life, this entire cycle play out. So you, you wouldn't know any different. And I think that's how they use, use it to paralyze us and to continue keeping us in this cycle. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I'm glad that you you pointed out how, you know, the politicians are going to use this to raise money on both sides, because, you know, we've already seen them do that. We've already seen them use uh, the pain of the people that they that they keep telling they have to vote for them in order to raise money. I mean, we've seen it with these primaries, you know, especially the ones that just happened in Georgia that are, you know, so pivotal. Everybody's making the, you know, the primary in Georgia uh, for the gubernatorial race. So it's a referendum on Trump. Yeah, I guess it is. But it's not like, you know, Brian Kemp is any better than, than Purdue. They're the same, you know, the same flavor, just, you know, different packaging, I guess. And, and I think when I look, though, at, at Henry Queller, the, the last Democrat, <laughs> that sounds like a horror movie, the last Democrat to oppose abortion rights. <laughs> but he is in a neck-and-neck race with a progressive uh, Jessica Cisneros and the only reason he he didn't lose just outright on principle was because he had the backing of the other Democrats. He had the backing of the Congressional Black Caucus. He had the backing of Nancy Pelosi, even some members of the so-called squad. And they completely ignored the pain uh, and, and the fear of women who are about to lose their right to reproductive autonomy with the overturning of Roe versus Wade that is that has been signaled to be on its way with a link, uh, a leak of the Supreme Court uh, justice decision on that. I mean, but but what did the Democrats do instead of seizing on that on the leak of that document and saying we need to protect women's reproductive rights? What did they do? They they seized on it to raise some money, but not raise money for progressives who would stand up for women's reproductive rights or and or any other people focused policy no they raised money for people like uh, Queller. and and i mean it is i i'm getting tongue tied because i'm trying not to cuss right now <laughs> but christine i see this primary season as a referendum on the progressive power, the the strength of the progressive caucus 
in Washington and whether they can actually exist. And and so far, it's looking pretty dismal to me. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's obvious that Democrats just love pain and trauma and they really don't enjoy being in power. (laughs) They continue to try to use the strategy of going with, you know, the the middle of the road and, you know, people, I guess, who are probably more corporate Democrats who are going to align more with their corporate interests than actually the interests of the people who they claim that they want to serve. And I mean, I even see it here in, you know, St. Louis where, you know, uh, Corey has, uh, you know, a challenger who to some extent is being propped up by some democratic mainstream, including, uh, you know, black democratic, um, establishment folks. And it, I mean, to me, it's just their, their lust for power outweighs, um, anything that they would want to do um, for the rest of us. And they're willing to sacrifice our rights in order to um, maintain some semblances of power and to keep their corporate donors. And I think that, you know, just as, uh, you know, Trump had a, a kind of a bad la- night last night. I think, too, you know, we as uh, progressive voters need to show up and show out and show that um, Democrats, uh, Democratic establishments um, can also have, you know, bad nights, too, because, you know, they have shown themselves to not even they, they did not even have the courage to to fight with Biden, who is as mainstream Democrat as it gets. Um, so, you know, I think they've shown us who they are. We need to believe them and to continue to uh, fight to, to keep progressives in and to get progressives into power. Yeah. You know what, Jackie, I was uh, when we look at, you know, the response to these uh, shootings by uh, Joe Biden and even, uh, you know, Barack Obama and others uh, have have weighed in on this. It 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 feels. <laughs> It feels like some of that same old opportunism, just like I think you were mentioning about how the Democrats, you know, did fundraising off of uh, the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade instead of like, you know, like doing something about it. Um, it, It's a similar story. It it feels like the Democrats may be trying to uh, use this whole issue um, as sort of a, a, a political sort of hook, if you will, as we head towards. Uh, midterms because they don't have anything else like they don't you know they don't have anything to actually offer the the masses of people and this just could and this could you know just be me but uh when we look at sort of the opportunism of the democrats in the past and how um i think it was christine that just said how they kind of love to play on this pain and tragedy because you know they can look like they're taking the moral high ground and maybe do some, you know, middling thing uh, that makes it look like they're addressing it when they're really not. But it it it's just pretty gross to feel like, you know, the the, the Democrats are only willing to uh, uh, address these in, um, issues in so far as uh, they can exploit them to maintain that very power that Christine is describing. And when you talk about, you know, the challenger to um, Cory Bush. I mean, you know, I've said it before and I've said it a million times. The Democrats are always, always, always willing to capitulate to the right wing of its party and attack the progressive wing, you know, by uh, supporting these uh, uh, establishment candidates 
I mean, we know that Nancy Pelosi, you know, she apparently doesn't think that the Democrats should have any principles or any real criteria for being able to uh, run for office with the party. Uh, uh, don't uh, don't agree with abortion rights. Cool. You can still get Democrat support. And so you, you don't even as a Democratic candidate, you don't even have to uh, apparently you don't even have to pretend uh, to care about these issues that are literally life and death concerns for millions of people in this country. And you wonder why there's so much uh, uh, people feeling, why there's so many people feeling uh, disaffected and disconnected from the broader political uh, uh, process. But when you continue to give people nothing while expecting everything from them, well, this is what we get. And I think this is also a part of the decay and the rot that's uh, facing uh, the U.S. right now because this trick bag that we've been put in for so long about being browbeat into voting for Democrat while getting nothing in return, I really do think that's wearing thin for a lot of people and may continue to push more people away from the political processes in the United States. And so as movement people and as organizers, I think we have to be cognizant of that and think and discuss amongst ourselves about what is the best way to bring uh, folks into activity in a moment like this where it's so easy to be inactive. Right. This is a I don't I don't care for me. I, I, I know that sometimes it can seem like we're getting, quote unquote, used to these mass shootings. We should never get used to these. Mm-hmm. Right. People are rightfully or understandably shocked and disgusted and afraid when they see these things happen, and not only when they happen, but happening in rapid succession, one after another, right? And so we have to uh, uh, decide what can be done to bring people in, to shake people out of that feeling of hopelessness and that feeling of isolation, or as uh, the black prophet mystic Howard Thurman would say, you know, these people who stand with their backs against the wall. Mm. This is how people feel right now. Yeah. And so then as organizers, it is our duty. It is our job to be able to help shake people out of that and to help them see that, yes, this is very serious what we're going through right now. But what we can't do is withdraw. We have to, I think, actually be even more bold with the uh, kind of work that we do in these grassroots communities around not only this issue, but around so many others, as of course we know a lot of these problems are in fact interconnected. You know what I mean? And so I feel like that can be a difficult thing, um, uh, Christine, because we're talking about a time where people are straight up mourning. They're straight up grieving. This completely senseless loss of life right? Both in Texas and in Buffalo. But I feel like out of that grief and out of that feeling of uh, hopelessness, something really beautiful can be born if we have the gumption to build it. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. And I do believe that um, that is, is, is a clear possibility and a clear path forward. And I think it starts, uh, you know, with following the, you know, the direction of the communities 
um, that are currently um, in crisis right now. And I, I think that they can, you know, provide us with a lot of um, insight and in going forward um, and use them as, uh, not use them, but um, allow them um, to be our inspiration um, because they woke up that morning and they didn't think that that was going to happen to them either. And I feel like every day is a another opportunity. And as long as we keep that in the fourth thought, um, that not that that's happening to them, but it's happening to us. Um, I think that we can begin to, uh, you know, rally and, and, and wake people, uh, and, and, and keep them engaged in the, in the, in the fight. And, and, and not just in this fight, cause like you said, it's all interconnected and absent, um, real revolution. Uh, we're going to continue, uh, you know, to struggle. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Christine Hendricks is here. You know, Jackie, I, I didn't want to get out of here without talking about um, this whole situation with Robert O'Rourke. Oh, Robert. Beto. You mean Beto? No, I mean Robert. <laughs> hey, look here. His mama named him Robert. I'm gonna call him Robert. <laughs> okay. But he had, you know, there was this press con, excuse me, a uh, press conference that was happening about the shooting in Texas. There was a whole uh, panel of people, including Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick about the shooting. And so Robert think that that's a great time uh, to get up and I don't know, give his little testimony about what he thinks about it and what he thinks to be done. I think it's, I mean, it's pretty embarrassing to me and it was not well received uh, by the panel. I mean, they were cursing and screaming at him saying this is not the time and all those sorts of things. So I don't know if Robert O'Rourke thinks that, you know, this is somehow going to make it seem like he just cares so much about the issue. And man, shouldn't we have somebody like that in office who's going to do something? Let me tell you something. Robert O'Rourke is not going to bust a grape, Mm. right? Mm. I mean, he's just... I don't know, man. He's he's just I, I'm not sure how to describe someone as strikingly unremarkable as Robert O'Rourke. That's pretty accurate. You know what I mean? It 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 is just really quite annoying. I mean, it, it's grandstanding. And what makes it even more frustrating is that that kind of grandstanding is the most we can expect from these people. Mm-hmm. That's it. We can expect a little political theater like this. We can you know, expect some tweets from Biden and Obama and, and all these uh, other folks, but nothing that's actually going to uh, critically address this issue. And I mentioned uh, Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. After all that was settled down and, 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 and O'Rourke was escorted out of the building, he then goes on to say that uh, the shooting is not political and not partisan, which, of course, is horribly wrong. When you consider, just like Joe Biden said, that the United States, which is the world's only imperialist superpower, this is the only nation on Earth, 
the one that they tell us is the greatest, the only nation where these kinds of mass shootings are commonplace, mm-hmm. right? And you see uh, all the different contradictions of this capitalist system that breed just these kinds of incidents. Obviously, it's political, you idiot. It's directly connected to the system that governs this whole society. And so, you know, Jackie, when, when, when you really have a look at it, it's just such a sad picture all around of what our so-called leaders have to offer us. And, you know, no matter how they act, no matter, you know, what they say or how they try to act up or make a show out of things for their own benefit, it's hard not to get left with this very empty feeling because you know that all of that is just sound and fury mm-hmm. signifying nothing. Mm. And so what then do we do with this empty feeling? We get it filled up with our involvement in a principled, organized struggle around these very issues. All right. And I continue to maintain that a real people's movement is the only thing that is going to pull humanity back from the brink of oblivion that the capitalist class seems hell bent and determined to pushing us in. You know what I mean, Jackie? I mean, <laughs> when I think of, of the antics of, of Robert O'Rourke, <laughs> O'Rourke, I think of them as just that. And I think of politics in general in this country in regard to meeting the needs of anything we the people need. It's exactly the same thing. It's all performative. They all come out. I mean, that was no different from the Democrats kneeling with the kente cloth. Right. Right, That was no different. Honestly, (laughs) that's what that was. It it was a kente cloth kneel, except at at a a mass shooting at a school. And honestly, it was only done for him to get his name out in the media for a possible run at some elected office again, because what else has he been doing? Who's been talking about Robert O'Rourke? How else could he get the media's attention? Because he is, you know, remarkably uh, uh, ineffectual and, and He knows this. So he had to. This was his moment. But that is what politics is in this country. Politics, politician, politicians and campaigning. They're all strung together uh, uh, moments of opportunity Mm -hmm. where these professional politicians sit around. They literally sit around not doing a doggone thing with all that power that we vote them into these offices to do something with. They don't do anything with it, not not to benefit us. And they wait for this, uh, you know, some horrible tragedy where they can come out and 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 present the pretense of representing the people. And do this window dressing performative thing that O'Rourke just did that, you know, Pelosi and them did with the kente cloth and kneeling that they do every year with the pride displays. And I, that mm-hmm. that's all that's all this is. In the meantime, the actual legislating they do, Christine, the actual bills they pass, the actual, uh, 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 you know, deals they make. What are they all involved? They all involve sending weapons to some country to bomb some people. And then you've got Joe Biden sending $40 billion to Ukraine for their pensions. Meanwhile, we're going broke over here 
we don't have we, we we're not safe on our own streets over right. here. And 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 all of this, this entire political apparatus in this country is just a bunch of opportunistic performance crisis actors. Oh, my God, that's what they are. Christine, I just realized I talked myself into a realization that politicians are really just a bunch of performance crisis actors that we vote for in this country. Yes. Yeah, and I think the term you all are looking for to describe Beto or Robert is um, uh, he is the epitome of the mediocre white man. And um, one phrase that you'll hear a lot um, people about around in politics is that, uh, you know, politics or D.C. is the Hollywood for quote unquote ugly people. And so, you know, I think that that really is just kind of telling of, you know, how um, there is a lot of acting and entertainment that goes into our, our political scene. And I think that's what is just as telling as um, Robert's um, interruption is the reaction that he got, the cussing, the swearing, the, you know, their, their response was not, yes, we do want to find a way legislatively to ensure that, you know, children in Texas are safe. No, their response was to cuss and to get frustrated and to be defensive and to, you know, have him thrown out. While his his act may be performative, it still exposed the very real fact that um, the Republicans have no plan at all. They have they can't even be performative about it. Thoughts and prayers, you're you're going to get that if that. And 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 so I, I think that you know we we as a country need to to be prepared and and to to understand that and to demand that if you know we have all this time, energy, and money to send to uh, Ukraine, um, then we have all that time, energy, and money to devote to ensuring the health and safety and wellness of every single individual that walks this land, regardless of uh, their citizen status. Like we, we can do it. We won't do it because we don't have the will to. And that starts with us, the people, to, you know, to, to continue to, to, to sit in and, like you said, have that organized grassroots movement from people, from people who have never, you know, done anything before and to sit in, in a Governor Abbott's office who should never, ever get on a microphone again in his life and to sit in his office until, you know, he and, 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 and people like him uh, do something real uh, for, the, for the children in this country, for all of us, for real. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I was just thinking about how, uh, <laughs> you know, back with, because we've been talking about Robert O'Rourke and how um, back when he was running, I remember people were calling him like the white Obama. And <laughs> I think it's true that uh, O'Rourke would like randomly like lapse when like when he would speak sometimes he would lapse into like this weird like fake Obama delivery and I even used to believe that too that he was like a white Obama till I realized well wait you know Barack Obama has like actually accomplished things uh, in life and actually has like a legitimate appeal I mean he's every bit of a warmongering imperialist as any president but you know, O'Rourke ain't even got it like that. I don't think he's even uh, got what it takes to be even that. But, you know, all that aside, uh, when we really uh, have a look at it and really how it how it factors into the broader political moment that we're in with the United States, with all these other things happening, we've got terror attacks, we've got racist police killings, we got climate change, we have attacks on Abortion rights. We have 140 million people poor. We have issues of homelessness and hunger and all these sorts of things in the wealthiest nation uh, on earth. 
And what it all says to me, Jackie, honestly, is that we need a new system. Because when we look at the shooting in Texas, the shooting in Buffalo, when we look at people like Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Donald Trump, Mike Pence, Robert O'Rourke, Abbott of Texas, all these people, these are all uh, uh, elements that emanate out of the contradictions of this capitalist system, right? They are all products of that. You know, it's the only reason that they uh, exist. And the politicians, and I think another reason why uh, uh, we always see such, you know, weak need, mealy mouth uh, responses to these issues, we have to always remember that the Democrats and Republicans, these two sort of uh, uh, different elements of the ruling class, they are sworn to protect and uphold this system. So, of course, they don't do anything of substance when it comes to these issues, because that would contradict their fundamental mission to ensure that this racist capitalist system keeps rolling right along like a well-doiled machine like it has for the last several centuries. But, you know, Jackie, this thing is fraying at the edges. And the fraying is not something that the Joe Bidens and the Donald Trumps are going to feel. They're not going to feel the consequences of this social decay. Our Congress of millionaires is not going to feel the pain of this uh, uh, social and moral decay that's happening in this country. So the best they can do is pretend to care. and give us these uh, crocodile tears by going right back about their business. You know what I mean? I mean, that's absolutely true. That's why they do or do little of nothing about what they do in regard to us. But, Christine, I think the thing that has, uh, I can't say it shocked me, but it has dismayed me, is how... A part of the movement apparatus has fallen into the capitalist trap. And I think it it does bear some discussion, even for a few minutes, that we have to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of uh, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, because we, we can't talk about needing to change this system when there was supposed to be this organization that was founded off of this hashtag that grew out of the streets, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, that was supposed to be doing the work of that movement that came from the streets. But then, I mean, they're paying out $4 million to the board members, brother and father, you know, baby daddy and all cat, all their family gets put on, but all the people in the streets who created the Black Lives Matter movement, who are doing the work for the Black Lives Matter movement, they're still living in their cars. They're still having issues with, you know, jail sentences from those protests, not getting any money from. I mean, so so what do we say about that part of this equation of this society needing to change? Because it's, it's not just the politicians. It's also the people who find their niche in this system and can profit off of it while still trying to uphold this veneer of, you know, credi- credibility in the streets among the people. 
Oh, yeah. And there's a whole word on that as somebody who was personally affected by it and, you know, who was sworn to have gotten Soros money and am, you know, still, you know, living the struggle every single day. You know, this it's it's very true. And, and I think, you know, we have to understand that, the you know, that the enemy is crafty. And, you know, to some extent, they allow certain people to amass positions um, within these movements and to amass these types of money because they know that they are, you know, subject to, you know, being um I guess vulnerable uh, to doing exactly what, you know, Patrice and um, BLM at all was doing. And I think that, you know, many of us, uh, whether we like it or not, we have all been propagandized and and miseducated um, as being parts of the capitalist system. And so when faced with something like that, it's really easy to go, well, this isn't illegal. So, you know what I'm saying? And forgetting the moral and ethical principles uh, that would truly guide us to a revolutionary place. And so I think, you know, we have to continue to police our, I don't want to use the word police. Let me take that back. But we have to continue to um, hold ourselves accountable. We have to be accountable to ourselves and to make sure that when people are put in those positions, we are truly holding them accountable. We are sending in our, you know, black accountants, our people to, to look at the books and that there's true accountability within our community. And when they do things like this, um, to not have the impetus to try to justify it as well, you know, the white people, quote unquote, are doing it. No, we have to hold them accountable. We have to, uh, you know, it purge them from our movements if, if that's what's necessary um, in order to, you know, uh, in order to, you know, to actually get the justice that so many people truly, truly deserve. I know people personally who are still homeless. I know mothers personally who have not gotten the justice that they need, who have sacrificed their jobs and livelihoods to continue pursuing justice, not just for their child, but for everyone else's. And so I think that we need to uh, continue to honor those people and lift those people up um, and, can, and continue finding or, organizations who are doing the work, who do have the reputation. And many of them are not uh, national organizations or people writing in your community uh, who might not even have that 501c3. You, you don't need that um, to see somebody doing the work and then donate to that cause um, either. I think that we need to, to to acknowledge that, that there are people who are doing the work that we can personally support, and uh, we need to acknowledge those people and, and get money straight to, to the, the grassroots and not these organizations that just turn out to be capitalistic enterprises. Yeah. And, you know, what I think about a lot as it concerns this whole situation, I think it really shows what happens when, you know, we see like big foundation money and the intervention of the liberal wing of the ruling class lays hold to a a black struggle. And this has been a long time coming. There's a whole uh, history of this, I think. And I, sometimes I think about, I mean, it just really kind of feels like there was uh, uh, an effort to really stop uh, the movement for black lives from becoming sort of a, a truly uh, mass struggle of black people against white supremacy. And I feel like a part of that has to do with the limits that comes with that kind of funding and this kind of uh, uh, attachment to, you know, democratic electoralism and, and things like this. And you throw in the sort of typical pitfalls of, you know, uh, uh, the nonprofit industrial complex 
you know, that uh, creates all kinds of issues that we don't have time to get into right now. And I think that a combination of those things and really a whole lot more is a part of why we're looking at that. But then again, if we look back at the summer 2020, I mean, a lot of the people that filled the streets were people who, you know, were uh, newly radicalized. And that's what we have to remember. But uh, we're going to leave it there for today here on By Enemies Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. One thing, Christine Hendricks, so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow with all new episodes. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.